Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, what a Saturday we have had today. It's It's been something. It has. Um, I was just sharing an anecdote with Josh earlier. I was making lunch with my wife in the kitchen, and this beeping noise started to annoy us like beep 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 what the heck is going on and she's like is that one of our kids ipads or whatever and like no it's my phone blowing up it's twitter blowing up what happened and then we said jeff passing you know name checked us in one of his tweets and now you know our our website was going bonkers we've got a whole bunch of new users and a whole bunch of new twitter followers so thanks jeff uh it's been a really good day uh you know because this one soto news is is hot stuff yeah, obviously the uh, the focus for this podcast is going to be more of the Juan Soto news. I think I think listeners will care a little bit more about that than about uh, specifically the site performance and everything. But yeah, thanks <laughs> thanks to Jeff, uh, it, it was a very crazy morning, unexpected for sure. We picked up something like a thousand new Twitter followers. The site was having some traffic issues for a few minutes there. Uh, really exciting stuff. Um, and, and yeah, if you are a new listener joining from that or from Elsewhere, we know a lot of, you know, other decent sized creators and writers and such saw that tweet and started tweeting about us as well. So if you came from there or from Jeff or wherever, welcome. We we do this pretty, <laughs> we have a fun podcast here. We uh, like to get down into it. Um, if you are a returning listener, uh, I apologize. It has been so long since our last episode. Uh, we had some scheduling conflicts as well as we were prioritizing some of the value updates and some other uh, site wide kind of uh, some other other site-related issues. So uh, thank you for bearing with us, though. And let's get into today's episode, starting with that Juan Soto news. Uh, so the, the big breaking news from earlier in the morning was Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic tweeting out, uh, you know, tweeting out a story about uh, a recent extension offer that Soto rejected. It was for, was it 15 years and $440 million in total? And apparently the Nationals offered that, Juan Soto rejected it, and as a result, the Nationals are going to entertain trade offers for Soto. Um, first reaction to that is just, wow, $440 million, that's massive. Uh, but kind of a second look into that is, that's not really a very high average annual value. I believe it's it's something like twenty yeah $29.33 million average annual value over that 15 years, which is... I believe they, he said 20th most, uh, 20th highest average annual value on record, which, you know, it's not nothing. And it, it's insane to even allude to $440 million being nothing. But that's also not necessarily what you're expecting if you're Juan Soto. Juan Soto has two years of arbitration remaining. This year, he's made about uh, his arbitration salary was about $17 million, So you figure that's going to increase these next two years. Um, it's it's very possible his final year of arbitration in 2024, he earns either that 29 million or potentially even more than that. And so for that to be the average annual value of this long 15-year contract that also covers all of those free agent seasons, uh, it definitely seems short of his value. So it's it's not a situation where oh my goodness he's holding out. How did he turn that down? Um, it's, it, I think it's pretty fair to say, yes, the Nationals made a pretty competitive offer. $440 million is a lot of money, uh, but also it, it maybe comes short. Uh, what, was, what was your gut reaction to the contract value itself? So, you know, 
you can look at it at face value and say, oh, that's not even 30 million a year. That doesn't compare with, you know, guys are making 35, 36, 40. Uh, but keep in mind, it's a 15-year deal, and <clears throat> you you spread out the risk over the longer the time period, the lower the AAV. So you can't compare, you know, a 30 million dollar AAV for 15 years next to a 30 million dollar AAV for two or three years because those are different risk profiles. Having said that, um, he's 23, and you're getting you haven't even seen the best of Juan Soto yet. And this 15-year deal proposed would would cover his all of his peak years and then some, right? Really would take him to age, what, 38. So that's his entire career. So he's got to look at it from that point of view and say, in my entire career from this point on, am I going to make more than that? And apparently he decided, yes, I probably can. And I'm sure, you know, Scott Boris, his agent, was whispering in his ear, like, 500 million, 500 million, that's what we want. We want to break that. Boris is always trying to break records. So he was probably a big influence on this number saying nope we can get five so turn it down um the other point i would say is you know maybe because the organization issues you know the nationals are up for sale and he doesn't know what the future is going to look like there and he may be thinking okay i can get 500 million and i can go to the yankees or dodgers or somebody with a consistent winning tradition as opposed to a, more of a cyclical thing that who knows what the nationals owners are going to do next so, you know, there's an uncertainty factor there versus a certainty factor if he goes elsewhere. So um, I think those are the reasons. Yeah, I don't deny that Soto could absolutely love it in Washington. Obviously, it's been the only organization he's been with and he's won a ring there and, and whatever. But you're totally right to point out that the potential sale and the kind of mystery of what direction the franchise is actually heading in. And, you know, the the closest comp, the name that everyone's kind of been mentioning with this is Mike Trout because he entrenched himself on a massive contract with the angels and that hasn't i mean there's still plenty of years left on that that hasn't worked out the way trout wanted it to you know he he hasn't been able to be on a competitive angels team yet since since signing that contract and i'm sure juan soto wants to avoid that situation as well yeah that's a good point all right so pivoting from kind of the monetary aspect of that let's take a look at the second part of that story which is that the nationals are now listening on trade proposals um this is actually incredibly <laughs> well-timed news or, or poorly timed news depending on how you want to look at it um, a few weeks ago I, I wrote an article for the site and it's titled juan soto is untradeable and i broke down all of the reasons why juan soto is such a difficult player to trade for possibly you know borderline impossible to trade for um since the since i wrote that article his value has actually increased a little bit um his value is now his median trade value is now at 193.7 million and that's a lot <laughs> that's I, I believe still within the top five players in baseball uh, uh by trade value and that's just for the next two and a half seasons of him but that's so much money and he's it seems like he's on a hot streak right now so even if you figure you know the closer we get to the deadline you're obviously losing a couple weeks of Juan Soto's games but he's performing so well he's kind of putting some of the slow start he had this year in the rearview mirror that it kind of balances out a little bit so I, I wouldn't expect his value to go meaningfully to meaningfully change in either direction really between now and that deadline but that 193.7 million value is more than uh, by our farm system rankings by our our farm system value totals that's more than 14 entire farm systems and, and i know you know you're, you're not going to necessarily just trade soto for prospects but that's a pretty good sign that like that's a very very high total 
you've already eliminated half the teams from really contention in this in this bidding war right now. And, you know, there's even a handful of the top 15 that really shouldn't have any interest in Juan Soto right now based on where they are as an organization and their kind of ability to extend him, which is really what you have in mind if you're if you're trading for Juan Soto right now is you don't two and a half years. That's nice, but you want him to be your franchise guy. You want him sticking around for a while. And so that's kind of the the thesis of <laughs> of the article and of just the idea of why Juan Soto's so difficult nearly impossible to trade for is he's just way too valuable right now there's he would cost all of a team's best prospects we've talked about it in the past how you know you're not going to get a dollar for 20 nickels you're not going to get Juan Soto by trading 19 prospects worth 10 million each you need the big guys you need we need to start with a top five overall prospect you need your your whole farm is going basically all, all of the meaningful prospects in your farm or you're including a couple young big leaguers that with with really good futures ahead of them. It, it's just so hard to meet that price tag. Um, and, and there's a couple other things that have been thrown around. You know, either the idea of including a, a bad contract on the national side, or of you know, hey, even if they can't get a full 190 million, what if they can still get more now than they could in the off season? Um, and, and I have some thoughts about both of those. But first, I'll I'll let you weigh in on kind of just the <laughs> the enormity of the value and and the issues that leads to. Yeah, and so you know, Passon's tweet, which you know said, I think it was a Dodgers example in his tweet using our site. You know, just showed for illustrative purposes how difficult that would be uh, to get that much prospect value. Now, <clears throat> a lot of folks I've seen on Twitter and on our site have been using our tool to say, you know. Oh, let's just attach a bad contract. That's easy, right? Done. Do it. Let's throw Strasburg and Corbin in there, and you actually, you know, you've covered all of it. And my response to that is, that's easy for you to say, but you're not the Dodgers GM or whatever team you're doing that for. It's not your money. So you can easily say, yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat. Of course you would, because it's not your money. But you know how much Strasburg is owed and how much of that is deferred? Oh, my God. You know how much Corbin is owed and how much of that is deferred? I mean, you've got to be sensible about that. Pretend you're the GM. Pretend you're asking your owner to cover all of that negative value, which is an enormous ask. That's one part of it. And the second part of it is you don't know if the Nationals even want to do that. You know, like we don't know how important that is to save that money. It may not be important at all. And maybe they just want to focus on the prospects coming back. Or it may be important to clean the books for the new owner. So we just don't know. Um, so we have to sort of look at either way. It's an incredibly difficult proposition to your point because it's very difficult to put a prospect package together that totals that fair value amount. Like it's almost too early. You might have to wait until the offseason so that value comes down to a more realistic territory. Um, you know, Or you maybe some, maybe do some sort of hybrid where you, you do attach like a Corbin who's – like in the negative 50s, which brings the prospect capital amount down to like 140-ish. And maybe that's doable, but you're still getting into record territory. You're still getting into one Makata territory and then some for the Chris Sale trade a few years ago, as we wrote about then. So, you know, if you don't include them, it's pretty much impossible. Even a, a, a farm as deep as the Rays, first of all, it's not the Rays style to do that. But second of all, it's unusual in that, you know, uh, no team is going to wipe out their farm. I don't think for for one player, which which makes it incredibly hard. I also push back against the idea that you that the Nationals would really be interested in including Corbin. 
um, looking it up, it looks like only 10 million of his final year's salary is deferred. So that's not really a whole lot beyond the <laughs> insane amount that he is owed through the remainder of his contract. And his contract only goes through 2024. So if you are to move Corbin and Soto in a package today, you're freeing up a lot of money for 2022, 2023, 2024. But if you're trading Soto, if you're the Nationals and you're trading Soto, I don't think you're thinking of being competitive in 2023 and 2024. So what are you spending that money on, right? Like what's the incentive to pull down Soto's trade value just to free up funds in a couple of years where you're probably not going to do much or spend much anyway, um, unless they, you know, want to flip him and then go out and sign Trey Turner as a free agent or something odd along those lines that I think would have a lot of people scratching their heads. Uh, strategically, I don't see the motivation behind moving Corbin because we've we've heard multiple times in the past and seen multiple times in the past that teams usually don't carry over their kind of savings from year to year. It's not, oh, we spent only $60 million in budget in 2022, so and our usual baseline is like $100 million, so in 2023, we can put that extra $40 million toward the budget, and we can jump up to $140 million. We don't see that very often, if, if at all. So I don't necessarily see the incentive to moving Corbin. I guess if you're in the, the position of, okay, the most they're offering us for for Soto, the most any team is really willing to offer us is 140 million in prospects, anyways. So why don't we just get out of if we're if we're okay with doing that for Soto? Why don't we also lump in Corbin and just kind of get out of that contract? But otherwise, I'm I'm not really seeing the argument to pulling down Soto's value with Corbin specifically. So let's play out Strasburg and let's pretend you're Steve Cohen of the Mets, who money is no object, right? You could say, yeah, I'll take that Strasburg contract and. Who knows? Maybe we can fix him, and he can be, you know, a fifth starter for us. Um, that's a big if, but, but you know, you could see a guy like Cohen, hmm, you know, thinking about that, scratching his his chin, saying, hmm, <laughs> you know, what if I offer to take the entire Strasburg contract? And, you know, because the Mets have said publicly they would rather take bad contracts and give up prospects, so it fits their narrative a little bit. Uh, but the other side of that is just looking at the. Nationals farm system, it's one of the worst in baseball. Uh, baseball America just updated their top 100 and their top 30 list, and they have only one player on the top 100, and that's Cade Cavalli. Uh, there's kind of a drop off from there. Brady House is okay. Uh, Christian Vaqueros is okay, but then you know it's it, there's not much there on that farm. So if their main objective is to restock the farm then they're not going to want to include one of those bad contracts. But then again, you've got this catch-22 of, I don't know if anybody's going to give you that much capital and prospect value. So yeah, any way you slice it, it's a tough it's a tough one. Yeah, I actually included a scenario in that article. Um, not a specific scenario, but just, just looking at the numbers of even if they were to attach Strasburg, um, from the time of writing the article, and like, like I mentioned, these numbers have just adjusted slightly since then. But... 190.9 at the time for Soto and negative 154.5 for Strasburg because he's just almost entirely underwater and he's owed so much money. Um, th there's going to be, as you mentioned, like even the Mets, they're probably not lining up to take Strasburg's entire contract on. So there's going to be very few teams, if any, that really want to take that whole thing. And then even if you you say, okay, let's let's have the Nationals still eat half of Strasburg's contract and the acquiring team has the other half. Even then, you're, you know, above 100 million in trade value. 
that that's still a really high price that that very rarely ever gets traded for you're still asking a team to give up a ton of talent and take on half of this albatross contract you know it, oh, here's the numbers right here if if you were to eat half of Strasbourg's salary, the trade package is at 117 million in trade value, and that's that's asking the other team to retain 17 and a half million dollars of Strasbourg's salary each of the next four years, and not even up, counting Soto's money, right? Right, and and give up a you know a crazy amount of prospect capital, which was equivalent to like the Yelich trade and the Makata sale trade, you know, on top of all of that money. So it is ridiculous. Now I want to make one other point. Um, after that article, there was an interesting comment in a back and forth discussion about how we got to Soto's value, and the commenter suggested that we you can only go so high in dollars per war, only go so high in you know in F war, for example. Like once you get to like eight war, like it caps out at eight war, right? Instead of you know thinking he's nine war or ten war, and because teams don't generally pay for that. And there was an interesting discussion. Um, and my counter to that was it's sort of, you know, it, it goes back to kind of the contract risk uh, as one point and the and the way trade market diff, the way the trade market works from the free agent market. So on the um, on the risk side, you know, the one reason why you can go that high is because there is no risk. There is no fixed contract in Soto's case. He's just going year to year and they have an option if he if he got a catastrophic injury. They could just not tender him. There's no risk whatsoever because he's still an ARB guy, right, which is an advantage to the team. So you don't have to account for any sort of long-term contract risk, unlike, unlike all these other big contracts. So that, that increases the – because that risk isn't there, it increases the dollars per war that you can go to. And number two, the cost of acquisition in the trade market, you know, especially in the summertime when there is no free agent market, makes it even harder to acquire somebody. So you have to kind of pay up a little bit extra in trade capital. The two are very closely – money and trade capital are very closely interrelated, obviously. That's the whole point of our site. But the, we do acknowledge that there are differences when if, if trading is your only option, then you know you have to – there's an additional sort of hidden cost of acquisition, if you will, especially for superstars who are scarce. So that's that's those are the two reasons why, if you were wondering why his value is so high. Yeah, and I also had a, a conversation on Twitter where a user, Matt Rodiloso, made a really good point. He said, okay, well, I get it. No team can really meet this sky-high price for Soto at $190 million or whatever. Is there value to the nationals just kind of taking something better like excuse me is there value to the nationals just kind of taking the best offer they can get even if it doesn't meet that value let's say they forego 40 or 50 million dollars of trade value and they accept a package that has 140 million coming back to them is that potentially you know there, there's the possibility that that's higher than the trade return they could get in the off season is that something that, that is really worth considering? And and I have two responses to that. One is that even if that is higher, let's say they, they get an offer worth $140 million right now. Even if Soto's value dipped, and, and it will dip as the season goes on because he loses team control, he loses an extra month of the October bonus, which is pretty meaningful, and and right now he's on the lowest salary he's going to be on for the next two and a half years, so his value is only going to go down from here. That is correct. But one, it's not unless he just absolutely tanked in the second half, it's not going to go down 
that much to the point where even if it did go down to, you know, we're saying they're taking 140 million in value right now. Let's say even if his value goes down to 120, 130 million uh, by the off season, you have to quantify in some way. And maybe it's, it's not possible to actually quantify put into numbers, but there is value to the possibility that the nationals can still extend him. You know, the door isn't slammed shut on that. He's not telling them I absolutely won't sign to be here. There's the possibility that, you know, off season comes, the Nationals sell the team and the new owner is another Cohen and he hands him a blank check. And, and now you get to keep Juan Soto when you almost traded him away for for a, a below market rate return. So that's that's response one to that. And response two to that is even 140 million in trade value is really tough to get to. Um, the, the main comparison we kind of have on record, and this isn't even from when the site and the model truly existed. It was from one of John's uh, this trade in history articles was the Chris Sale deal. Uh, Chris Sale, three years of him, we estimated, kind of back estimated, at $133.2 million in trade value. And the return there was, it was Yuan Moncada and Michael Kopech, and then a couple of just kind of lottery tickets. Uh, Moncada was a consensus top five prospect in the game, and Fangraphs had him number one overall. So his value was at $104.8 million, which is monumental. There are zero prospects playing right now that are anywhere near that in trade value. The closest is Corbin Carroll, and he's in like the mid-70s. To get to a player of that kind of value where where Moncada was at the time, you're looking at guys like Julio Rodriguez and Hadley Rutschman and Bobby Witt Jr., and none of those guys are going anywhere. They they shouldn't be, at least. (laughs) None of those guys are going anywhere. And then on top of that, you're still talking about another $40 in trade value. (laughs) So it's it's just still such a steep price to get to. This is a much more exaggerated version of what you and I discussed a lot about Jose Ramirez in previous years, where his name would always come up in, in discussions, but he was just too valuable. You know, there's, there's no team that can quite afford to give up all of the pieces and still be okay with where their organization is in the long term, even if they are getting a superstar on an affordable contract, there's no team that's willing to meet that price. And so, as nice as it would be and uh, as nice as it would be if the nationals could get 190 million dollars worth of prospects right now as huge as that would be to jump starting their rebuild they can't so why sell below value when you can just wait it out keep trying to extend him yeah so there is a little bit of value in that i agree and um there's also kind of a long-term thing a lot of gms think about this which is like if i don't get fair value for my guy especially my premium guy I'm going to set a precedent. Like, next time you call me, you're going to say, yeah, you took a low-ball deal on Soto, so I'm going to give you a low-ball deal on Cavalli or whatever the player is. You know, then you start digging yourself into a hole because you didn't insist on fair value, and everyone thinks they can take advantage of you. So you got to consider that, especially with your superstar. Uh, Like, that's the reason Frankie Montas, frankly, didn't go. Uh, reading between the lines because the A's didn't get fair value offers for him in the offseason so they said okay let's wait till the deadline unfortunately they ran the risk of you know him getting injured which you know okay he's he's hurting right now so that dinged his value a bit um so there's always that but you don't have to sell him and there's a philosophical point to holding on to your price you've got a ferrari in the garage you're not going bankrupt you're fine you don't need to sell that ferrari for half the price so you know it's it's okay you don't have to and there is, you know, that that's kind of optics. There's another optics issue as well with the sale of the team. You know, you don't want to 
if you're if you're the learners, the the current owners of the Nationals, you don't want your last move before you run out the door to be trading Juan Soto, trading you know the guy who gets the Ted Williams comps. He's 23 year old, super duper star, potential future Hall of Famer already, one of the best hitters in the game. You don't want that, and I know we can we can debate how much optics and PR and that kind of stuff actually matters, but I think a lot of people really care about that. And the learners, you know, they brought a ring to the Nationals. They they want to, I, I assume, they would want to kind of go out on a higher note than, yeah, we also made the team trade Juan Soto. See you later. Yeah, no, I agree. And you don't know what the new owner is going to want, clean books or superstar in the fold. Uh, that is the big mystery. Uh, but the fact that they've relented from their pre- previous, A, we're not trading Juan Soto in at all, to, okay, we'll listen now. Um, suggest that they're sort of tapped out with the extension offers and you know they're seeing what they can get I, I I think that's you know the rest of it is sort of speculative like you don't know what the new owner is going to want to prioritize you don't know if they're going to want to get rid of Strasburg's contract or not so at this point well you know those are that's what the landscape looks like you're going to pay up in prospect capital in bad contract capital or some combination of the above all of the above is hard <laughs> that is our point <laughs> Yeah, and one last point to it. You you mentioned it earlier. Juan Soto's 23. How many of these prospect packages that people are proposing include 21 and 22 and 23-year-old prospects that haven't done anything yet? There's something so out of line and it's not even as much the, you know, the optics of it or whatever, but there's something in my brain that doesn't accept the idea of trading the 23-year-old super-duper star for a 22-year-old in AA. You know, there's something very wrong about that, as there should be. There is something wrong about the idea of the Nationals trading Juan Soto. Yeah, I mean, you're trading, you know, young certainty for young uncertainty. So there's a cost to that uncertainty, right? They should be different. Yeah. And so to wrap this up, I just kind of want to read the last paragraph from my article. It kind of sums everything up that we've been saying. Even if the Nationals can't extend Soto, there's no reason to trade him at this point. His value is as high as it ever will be, but there's no chance they'll be able to receive full market value in return right now. It is incredibly likely that the highest bid for Soto today will not fundamentally differ too much from the highest bid a year from now. Basically, how much, how high above $100 million do you expect the highest bid's value to be today? And how far, what, what range do you expect... Soto's value to be in a year from today with a year and a half of team control remaining. I don't think there's that big of a gap there. And I think a lot of that gap can be bridged by the possibility of an extension and what that's worth to the nationals. Yeah. And keep in mind, he is, we said this again, his best years are yet to come. Like we haven't even imagined, you know, how he would go up in field value from here at age 24, 25 or so, you know, cause he might just, you know, turn a corner and, and be just be ridiculous the next couple of years. He's already, you know, pretty ridiculous already, you know, but even more ridiculous. Like we haven't even factored that in yet. So, <laughs> yeah. And especially cause we saw signs last year that his defense was improving and that's kind of taken a step back this year. But if he can figure that out, if he can, if he can add a defensive element to his game with everything supernatural he does offensively then yeah I, I think that's the easiest way you see the next level of Juan Soto and and that's not out of the question at all all right is that enough Juan Soto for today I think we covered it Josh sweet let's get into the other news because there is there is plenty of other news there were a lot of trades that did happen <laughs> 
All right, so just going chronologically here, we're going to start with a relatively minor one. This was back on June 23rd. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a few weeks since we've done a podcast. <laughs> back on June 23rd, the San Francisco Giants acquired designated hitter Willie Calhoun, who we had at 0.0 million in median trade value, from the Texas Rangers in exchange for outfielder Stephen Duggar at 2.2. Uh, they're also the Giants also reportedly did receive cash considerations. I don't think that figure was ever announced, uh, but it it makes sense. You know, there's a 2.2 million dollar gap here. Uh, it, it only makes sense that that helps bridge it. This was kind of a a swap of fits, I guess. The Giants were looking for more left-handed power. Calhoun really needed a change of scenery. He he was not happy in Texas, and Texas looking for some more defense outfield depth rather than the one-dimensional player that Calhoun is. Uh, is there anything else meaningful to this one? Yeah, there was an interesting twist to this. So Calhoun had been DFA'd, and no one claimed him. So he was outrighted, uh, which means he wasn't on the 40-man roster, and he wasn't taking up any, any room anywhere. The Giants, that actually interested the Giants, paradoxically, because they couldn't fit him on the 40-man roster. They just wanted him as a depth piece that they didn't have to add to the 40, which you don't see very often. You know, it's like, okay, I'm going to give you actual value for a guy with no actual value is who I don't have, you know, because I don't have to do something that would hurt me. You know what? There's weird logic there Um, because at the time I think they just needed a little bit more depth. Um, But the fact that no one claimed him, you know, kind of validated our zero, you know, uh, number on him. Uh, But then because the Giants needed an extra piece, I think somebody had been injured at the time. So they thought, well, let's just have him in the backyard if, if we need him. Um, and you know, there's, there was a weird sort of cost to that, um, because they didn't have to add him to the 40. Very unusual. Yeah. Really good point there. The giants are excellent at managing their roster, managing their 40 man options, platoons, all of it. They, they inch out every, every little last bit of value that they can from that and from the flexibility that they can get. And that's why they've this season they've been doing kind of the Jerry Depoto, you know, the trades and the waiver claims just left and right. Um, but yeah, that's a really good call. This is just another example of that. All right, the next significant trade, the Seattle Mariners on June 27th acquired first baseman Carlos Santana. We had negative 4.9 million in median trade value and cash considerations, which was reportedly 4.3 million from the Kansas City Royals in exchange for right-handed reliever Wyatt Mills at 0.6 and right-handed pitcher William Fleming at 0.5. So the totals, negative 0.6 in value to the Mariners, 1.1 million, positive 1.1 million in value to the Royals, accepted by the model. Um, The Mariners have really been hurting for offense, at least at that point especially. (laughs) And they had Ty France performing well, but they also had some injuries and they weren't really getting much DH production either. And so Mark Santana, who was previously a Mariner for like a couple days before they flipped him in another deal uh, during the offseason a few years back, uh, he actually gets his first shot with the Mariners. I, I think he's had a couple big hits for them since then. Um, and, and on the Royals side of it, you know, they get out from just a little bit of Santana's money. And they open up a spot for one of their top first base prospects, Vinny Pascantino. So pretty clear deal there, you know, kind of bargain hunting Mariners, just picking up a bat and seeing what happens, especially because at the time they were out of a playoff spot. Uh, But now they're on fire and they're charging back uh, toward contention right now. So it's looking like a smart move that costs them very little next to nothing. And they still have all the resources available to make a bigger move before the deadline. 
Yeah, and just a note on this. So it was accepted by our model, but it actually happened right before we did our last update, which dropped Santana's value a little bit more. So if we'd actually had, you know used those numbers a day or two later, that that would be an even closer deal. So it was a fair deal, um, you know, any way you look at it. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's just one of these things. I think, you know, they need Thai France coverage and the Royals were done. So it makes sense to me. Yeah. Next one, the Rays acquired on, on July 9th, they acquired catcher slash first baseman Christian Bethencourt at $3.1 million in median trade value from the Athletics in exchange for outfielder Cal Stevenson at $0.2 million and right-handed pitcher Christian Fernandez also at $0.2 million. This one was accepted by our model, but it was a slight underpay by Tampa Bay. Uh, the, uh, the A's sent out $3.1 million and only got $0.4 million back. Um, but it seems pretty reasonable to see why. Uh, for the first, for, for, first of all, Christian Bethencourt was a minor league free agent signing in the offseason, who I believe he was overseas last year. So it was really just the A's playing completely with house money. They signed this guy for free, basically, and now they're trading him away for couple prospects so kind of anything they can get for him is is significant also Bethencourt's surface level stats did not look all that great but his underlying metrics he was hitting the ball extremely well his expected stats were much much better and so that kind of might contribute to the gap a little bit where you know xwoba is one of our expected weighted on base is one of our inputs for the values and there was a pretty sizable gap between Bethencourt's ex-WOBA and his actual WOBA, his actual performance. And so maybe, you know, a sizable gap like that, just the traditional stats being so poor might turn a couple teams off, might lower his value just a, a teensy bit if there is such a sizable gap there. And then one final consideration to this is just the A's outfield depth has been atrocious in their higher minors and in the majors. And so you can imagine they might have prioritized getting Cal Stevenson uh, who's an older outfielder, not not exciting, more of a fourth outfield type, but they might have prioritized him since he is nearly MLB ready, uh, rather than maybe a maybe a prospect with a little bit more value, but not, that doesn't quite fit their immediate needs as well. Yeah, I agree with all your points. Yes, we're definitely playing with house money, so sure, you know, let's cash it in um, because maybe you know he, you know sell high on him before he turns into a pumpkin, which he very well might. Excuse me, very well may. He was also out of options, which lowers his attractiveness uh, to other teams because you have to DFA him if he goes south. Uh, but he does have three years of control after this. Uh, so there is some value in that. And so that's why he was a little bit higher, like in the low threes. And to your point, um, you know, the expected stats were good. I'm sure an advanced t team like the Rays considers that and considers the importance of that. Um, but on the A side, I was a little bit curious why they would you know, only take these two very low level prospects the the key point that i noticed is that both of them are rule five eligible um the younger pitcher who is like 20 or so is already rule five eligible unlikely to be traded because he's like an a ball um i mean unlikely to be picked in the rule five draft but nonetheless if you sort of map out his timeline he's going to be rule five eligible every day every year from here so it's not like he's going to have a ton of value even if he you know starts pitching really well but you know he's a pure lottery ticket um uh, Cal Stevenson, local guy from my hometown, Fremont, California. Yay, Fremont. Um, you know, he's also Rule 5 eligible. He's an older guy looking like a kind of a quad A bench guy. 
Um, but hey, look, maybe the Ray, maybe the A's put him on their 40 and they don't care about the Rule 5 draft because they could just plug him in and play center field. Sure, fine. He does get on base. He does have some speed. No power whatsoever, but, you know, sure, they can play him. So maybe the, the fact that he's Rule 5 eligible wasn't a factor for them because they have him on their 40 and they could just go ahead and plug him, plug him in. So, you know, again, house money, get something, maybe he turns into something. So, okay. Yeah, I think that last point is 100% correct that it doesn't necessarily matter too much that Stevenson is Rule 5 eligible because I, I think it's pretty likely he gets added to the roster this season anyway because, they, like I mentioned, they, they need the depth, especially if they end up trading Chad Pinder or Ramon Laureano or any other outfielders moving on from Steven Piscotty, whatever. Uh, they're going to need the depth out there. I, I think he gets a chance at some point, and so he'll have to be added to the 40-man anyway. And if not that probably means he was pretty bad <laughs> for them this, the rest of the way. And that makes him less attractive as a rule five candidate to other teams and less likely to be taken. So, all right, last trade that we have to get to is the most interesting of the bunch. Uh, this one really came out of nowhere. The Kansas city Royals acquired outfielder drew waters outfield prospect drew waters at 7.0 million in median trade value as well as right-handed pitching prospect Andrew Hoffman at 1.5 and third base projects prospect CJ Alexander at 0.1 from the Atlanta Braves in exchange for the 35th pick in the draft, the uh, compensation round a pick, uh, which we have at roughly 7 million in trade value. That's an estimate based off of the values of prospects uh, of draft picks taken at that spot in the draft or around that spot in the draft the last few years. So those prospects have tended to range between six and eight million in value. So that pick putting it right in the middle at seven million. And this deal is accepted by the model with the seven million dollar draft pick, uh, seven million dollar million dollar valued draft pick, excuse me, uh, in exchange for eight point six million in prospects. Uh, and this one is super interesting. Uh, the first thing that we really need to stress and point out because we saw a lot of confusion about this when the deal was announced, is that the value of the draft pick, that $7.0 million trade value, is a very different thing than the slot value of the pick, which is $2.2 million. It's it's the kind of estimated bonus allotted to that uh, prospect when you draft them. Those are two very different things. Uh, we've seen many cases clearly showing us that picks are much more valuable than their slot value dictates, if that makes sense. You know, the, the slot value is just kind of an artificial cap, N not necessarily cap, but it's an artificial estimate used to kind of limit spending by teams and limit how much you can spend on each uh, on your draft as a, as a whole. Um, that's not the same thing as saying exactly how valuable a player is. That would be like saying that my, the Alejandro Kirk is worth $700,000 because that's his salary. That That's not, that, that, that would be like saying that, but when we clearly know that's not the case, he's producing much above what he is being paid yeah. at the time. Um, so it's along those lines. We, we heard it come up last year with the Kumar Rocker issue. Steve Cohen basically admitted that it was a very valuable pick, <laughs> much more so than the money that, that would be lost or, or that would be spent signing Rocker. And the, probably the clearest example of, of misunderstanding this was back in 2015 when Dave Stewart was GM of the D-backs and he traded Bronson Arroyo along with a top prospect at the time, Tuki Toussaint, to the Atlanta Braves just to get out from Arroyo's contract. And what he said was, oh, there's $7 million left on Arroyo's contract or whatever, and we only spent 
Tuki Toussaint, we only signed Tuki Toussaint for $3 million. So it was a good trade for us. You know, he's only worth $3 million, but that's just not how it works at all. Um, so I need to make that very clear. I, I think, I think a lot of people kind of, kind of got that one on the first read, uh, but I just want to make that abundantly clear. Yeah. So the other sort of interesting observation here is that Drew Waters stock has fallen to that level. You know, a couple of years ago, he was in the forties and considered, you know, a potential star. Uh, but then he struggled. Uh, his pitch selection is not that great. Um, rumors that his coachability is not that great uh, have tanked his value all the way down to about $7 million. Um, the other point I want to make, just to kind of validate the value, the estimated value of that draft pick, if you look at um, last year's draft, 2021 draft picks, and kind of where, you know, they fall in that same general area, names like Carson Williams, Colson Montgomery, James Wood, uh, Matt Nelson, uh, these were all sort of right after the first round or right at the end of the first round, but sandwich picks between first and second. Um, Colson Montgomery has shot up to 23. Uh, James Wood has shot up to 25, I believe, in our latest update. Um, the other guys are still around, you know, high single digits, but um, they were, according to our model, at the time that they were drafted, 7.6, 7.6, 6.6, 6.0. So we, we sort of averaged it out to about 7. But there's a high variance there because some of these guys could just explode like Montgomery and Wood have, and some could just sort of linger like, you know, Matt Nelson has. So um, it could go either way, but it's generally not any lower than that. Um, there is also a variance if you have a hitter or a pitcher because pitchers have a little bit higher risk. So the pitcher may be like, you know, anywhere between five to seven and the hitter might be anywhere between six to 10. So it's, you know, fungible, but it's generally in that neighborhood. Um, so the other point I want to make is that sometimes you see a comp B draft pick uh, and those tend to be in the, like the two to three range. I think we saw that uh, with the Marlins Orioles trade just at the end of the off season. Yeah. With the two relievers. Yeah. Um, so, and that one was a, a fair value in our model as well. And by the way, Michael Elias of the Baltimore Orioles, the GM, followed us after that, which was a nice sort of say, hey, you guys got it right. So, uh, felt good about that one too. Yeah, one other note about those, well, two other notes actually, about those draft picks is first off, the competitive balance picks are the only ones that are tradable and they can only be traded once. Uh, I've seen some confusion about that of saying, oh, in the new CBA now you can trade draft picks. That's a big deal. No, not all of them. You've always, since, I'm pretty sure since they began offering the comp A and comp B picks, um, you've always been able to trade them. And we see it from time to time. It's just not super common. Also worth pointing out that the competitive balance picks are different from the compensation picks, which are rewarded um, if you offer a player a qualifying offer and they sign with another team, then you get your team gets a compensation pick. That's a different thing. Those picks are not tradable, uh, but apparently we've decided to call them both comp picks, so that's cool. <laughs> um, and then the last thing I wanted to mention is that the other reason it's hard to really place a firm value on the pick is that the way the draft works isn't quite lined up with the way prospects are evaluated. You know, if you take the top 35 prospects in this year's draft and line them up by most valuable to least valuable, just based on what quality they are as of a prospect, how, how good you think they will be in the future. That's not the order that the draft is going to go. There's going to be guys who fall because of signability issues or who are up higher because of, you know, a specific team need or team fit or, 
or you can get them under slot in the first round. So you can sign one of those signability guys in the second or third round. So there, there's definitely some variance provided by that as well um, that can kind of contribute to some of some of, of the variance uh, around that spot in the draft. Okay, that's our main transactions for the last few weeks. Um, there are some other some other news and rumors that I want to get to. Uh, probably don't need to linger on any of these too much. Um, first off, uh, reportedly the Royals aren't planning to trade Zach Greinke. Uh, unless he specifically asks asks to be dealt. Uh, that's not super surprising to me. You know, he went back to Kansas City because he's comfortable there. He's a guy who cares a lot about where he is. And we know we've all seen kind of the, the stuff about Zach Granke is as a specific personality. And he's never been the type to just go where the money is, that kind of thing. And so, you know, maybe he does want, a part of him does want maybe to to pitch for a contender to to fight for a playoff spot down the stretch but i think he's also just kind of content where he's currently comfortable and and working with that team so not too surprising we have him a little bit uh below even a little bit negative in value anyway i believe he's around like negative three um because he hasn't been pitching all that great um but i i assume some teams would be looking at him as a veteran arm eat some innings kind of guy but it, it seems likely he'll stay put um do you have anything to add on him no, but should we just take an aside on the Kansas City Royals and their Canada issues? Um, sorry, I don't mean to make this anything more than a baseball topic, but um, people have wondered, hey, um, you know, does that hurt the trade value of a Whit Merrifield or a Ben Attendee, you know, or something like that? And the answer is, yeah, I think it does a little bit. So Granky may not be traded, but some of these other guys who might have been on the block, it does hurt them a little bit. Yeah, the, the two main ones that stand out from that list that, that were unable to travel to Canada had to be placed on the restricted list were Andrew Benintendi and Michael A. Taylor. Uh, Michael A. Taylor wasn't necessarily a slam dunk trade candidate uh, because he kind of looked like one last year, and then they didn't trade him, and instead they signed him to a two-year deal. And so he has another year of team control, and it seems like the Royals really like him. They like his his fit for the ballpark as as a good defender in that big outfield. Uh, plus, he's actually hitting pretty well this year. So he already wasn't a slam dunk, but he was an interesting fit for a team like the Yankees uh, that hasn't had really a stable center field situation all season, and he could really help out there, be kind of a fourth outfielder for them. Uh, but that seems to be somewhat off the table now. These guys, I mean, unless they... I, I did see a report that there is some optimism that they would agree to get vaccinated if traded to, say, Toronto. Um, but at least for now, that that's a hurdle that would need to be crossed. And and if they stayed this way, they would not be able to be traded to Toronto because people very often forget that it's not just a rule requiring everyone who enters Toronto to be vaccinated. It's it's the other way around as well. The United States requires it as well. So everybody on Toronto's roster has to be vaccinated as well if they want to play games in the United States. So it it goes both ways, and it would create some real issues for them to have a non-vaccinated player on the roster. So they're kind of out of it, uh, unless those players were to get vaccinated to join their team, they're kind of out of it. And then teams like the Yankees and Red Sox and Orioles and Rays, who are going to be going to Toronto frequently, and beyond that, any playoff teams that might have to go to Toronto for a series. If you're getting Benintendi, you're thinking of using him in October and he might even be your leadoff man in October. So 
you know, it's, it's a little lower likelihood and probably less of an issue for a team like the Padres in the National League, where the only way they're going to go to Toronto is if they've made it to the World Series. And just by, you know, probabilities, that's a very small chance of them actually going all the way to the World Series. And, and specifically, it being against the Blue Jays. But for other teams, especially teams in the American League, and especially teams in the American League East, um, there's there's going to be, for the, for the AL East teams at least, there's going to be some trips to Toronto in the regular season, and some of those games might be very meaningful. And so you want to be able to have, you know, whatever your outfield trade acquisition is, you want to be able to have them active for that trip. And then for other teams, say the Mariners, if they both make the wild card round, their first round matchup might be in Toronto. And every little bit of value you can get in that first three game wild card round is important. And if they lose, I actually don't remember the format of that round. If it's uh, all three games at one spot or two and one or what it is, but either way, if they have to play any of those games in Toronto without their leadoff man in Ben Intendi, that's, that's going to be an issue. So I think it does meaningfully impact their trade value. It doesn't it doesn't absolutely tank it, but I think there is a meaningful impact. Yeah, and it's just one of these common sense things. Like, ooh, that's bad. <laughs> yeah, and if you're the other side and you're kicking the tires, you're thinking, oh, I can't use him, or there's a hurdle there. Or, yeah, I'm not going to pay as much as I thought I would for that guy. Yeah, I, I personally think the Yankees of it all isn't as big of a deal anyways, and, and this is getting into just kind of opinion, but... Aaron Hicks has been very good for them recently, and they have some other needs that are much more pressing than an outfielder like Ben Benintendi, so maybe not a huge deal for them. They can pivot to a lower-end outfielder if they really want one, or they can really just direct all their resources toward a starting pitcher, uh, which might be <laughs> might be better advised anyway. Um, but yeah, just, just definitely want to point that out, that it will have an impact on their trade values just because there's less teams that can easily trade for them and even the teams that can trade for them they're they're gonna have to miss a few games it's no different than if you know they had they had a few days remaining on that they were injured and had a few days remaining on the injured list where they wouldn't be able to play for for that team you know it's, it's the same thing they just won't be available all right from there uh one unsurprising bit of news that the Rockies are unlikely to be major deadline sellers. Uh, we did also see some rumors that they are considering trading Alex Colomay and um, and Chad Cool, a couple of pitchers. We actually have both of those guys in negative value. So surprise, uh, yeah, <laughs> not going to be many teams really lining up for those two. Um, but this is just what the Rockies do. They for whatever baffling reason just like being mediocre i guess and don't like getting value where they can and so we saw last season they hung on to trevor story at the deadline they hung on to john gray and and didn't get anything in return for either of those guys i, I believe they, they at least got the qualifying offer return for trevor story uh but did not for john gray and so that didn't work but on the current team, you've got Daniel Bard, you have CJ Crone, you have Herman Marquez, who you have Jose Iglesias, each of whom seem like they could be trade candidates, and none of those guys are going to really restock your farm too much. I mean, Crone is on a two-year deal, and he's been hitting really well, so he might get a decent return. And Herman Marquez is a quality starting pitcher, but he's having a rough season this year, and he's on a fixed contract, so his value isn't what it used to be. Uh, but they, they are players that you would see the traditional team in the Rockies position, at least considering trading. 
but it doesn't seem too likely <laughs> they're, because they're the Rockies and they like to just go their own way. They do. But, you know, we've been bashing the Rockies for years now, and I'm going to give them one prop. I'm going to give them one good thing. I have noticed, Colorado Rockies, that your farm is getting better and better. I have noticed that you've got more and more prospects sneaking into the Baseball America Top 100. I have noticed that Ezekiel Tovar in particular is blown up. We have him at 52.2, surpassing even Zach Veen, your former top prospect. And Drew Romo and Adele Amador and even Elu Hiris Montero, who I believe came over in the Arenado trade, is at 15. You've got uh, like five guys in double digits in your farm, so good for you. Bill Schmidt used to be the scouting director and uh, you know the guy who ran that, so maybe that's their strength. They're just going to keep doing this homegrown thing, developing prospects, and don't care about trading. That's That's all I got. Yeah, and I will say that I'm not necessarily saying they have to trade CJ Crone or that I, I'll think they're a failed franchise if they don't. It seems like he's kind of their guy. He's been very, very successful in Coors, and I don't see any issue with hanging on to a guy like that. Uh, but they really should be at least taking offers on everybody else that isn't really tied down, and it doesn't seem like that's going to be their approach, and I, I don't see the logic in that one. Uh, but I guess we'll we'll just see what actually happens. We've heard that they are looking into trading a couple guys and that they're not really going to be selling everything off, but we haven't seen exactly what they're deciding to do. So I guess we'll have to just wait and see. All right. And then lastly, I wanted to just discuss kind of broadly, but with some rumors sprinkled in here and there, um, the state of the top of the starting pitching market. There's a pretty clear big three at the top that are very likely to be traded. And that's Luis Castillo of the Reds, Tyler Maley of the Reds, and Frankie Montas of the A's. And preseason, we had Luis Castillo's value just a little bit ahead of Montas's. They were they were in the same kind of general area with Castillo getting the slight edge. Um, and then Maley a, a good bit behind both of them. But since then, things have shifted a bit. And Castillo is, at this point, far and away the best of the three, the most valuable of the three. And Montas kind of fell closer to Maley's territory. And that's in large part due to the injury, due to Montas's current shoulder issues, plus Maley's on the injured list with shoulder discomfort as well. Uh, but also Castillo has just been excellent this year. And he started the season on the injured list, but he's come back since then and he's looked very good. He just mowed down the Yankees the other day and they're one of the top suitors for him. Uh, the other teams that are reportedly interested are the Dodgers and Astros, of course. Uh, the Blue Jays, Cardinals, Mariners, Twins, everyone needs starting pitching. The Mets, the Padres, uh, but it really seems like Yankees, Dodgers, and uh, and Astros are kind of the big three there, just because they, they're the big market teams. They've always been willing to, to make a big impact move like this. Um, but he, I mainly just want to point out that he's really put himself on top. He's really the prize of the trade market this offseason. Um, Montas and Maley are still probably going to get moved and they're still probably going to get their teams a, a sizable return, some prospects worth getting excited over, but Castillo is really the, the gem that's remaining here. Um, do you have any, any takes on either fits for these three or, or, you know, whether you think one of them's a bargain or anything like that? Yeah, a little bit. So, but I just want to make a general comment. So, um, first of all, sneak preview, we're about to do another update kind of in the middle middle of the month update um and castillo is going to creep up a little bit more 
don't be surprised if he goes a little bit over 40. We had him at 38, I believe. Um, partly because he's healthy and performing so well, partly because of the supply and demand and market dynamics, to your point. The other two have fallen back a little bit due to injury concerns, and he is just rocking and rolling. So everybody wants him. Um, so there's going to be an auction f to the highest bidder. Um, you wouldn't have thought the Yankees would have needed that because they've been on a roll, but there's now questions about Severino's health. Um, and there's kind of a drop-off. If you think about how the Yankees are going to be lined up for the playoffs, obviously you're going to start with Cole. Everyone thought Severino would be number two if you had like a three-man rotation or even a four-man rotation in the playoffs. You know, but now Severino, there's some questions. And then you got some questions like, who's, you know, is it Tyone? Is it Cortez? Is it Montgomery? Like, you, how much do you trust those guys in a playoff game? You know, Cortez has been a great story, but he's also sort of leveled off a little bit. So, like, you really need a one-two punch. Like, history shows that teams with that one-two punch at the top of the rotation do very well in the playoffs. So, you know, you need a, you need a second sort of close number two behind, behind Cole. And I'm not sure they have it. Um, so, so I guess that explains. Like at first, I was like, "Why would the Yankees want him?" Uh, but, but now it, it seems a little more, more clear. Um, the Dodgers, you know, they do this every year. They got Scherzer last year, and you know, they got Darvish a few years ago. They just do that, you know, at the deadline. They always get another starter because they're thinking ahead to the playoffs. Um, so, so yeah, I could see both of those players. The Astros, because um, their farm is pretty weak. I'm not sure, actually, you know, we just talked a whole bunch about Soto and meeting his price. I'm not even sure the the Astros farm is so weak, I'm not even sure they can meet Castillo's price, frankly, um, unless they got creative. Uh, so, I, yeah, that's sort of the outlier for me. Uh, but just also want to comment on why Montas and Molly and Maley fell short. Um, it's because shoulder injuries are no joke. Well, you know, Montas got pulled from the first inning when his velocity was down. And yes, they made nice and said, oh, you know, uh, he's just sore. He's needed a couple more days of rest, whatever. And then the MRI didn't find anything significant. But you also notice that they kind of had him lay low for a while and, you know, they skipped a start. And now he's going to, you know, we don't know yet just how serious it is. But shoulder issues can often lead to bigger issues. And the same with Molly. And in, there's a, a newsletter that I've mentioned before called Under the Knife, written by Will Carroll who goes into this, and he, he's a reporter that specifically, his beat is, is injury issues and knows quite a bit about kind of how to interpret them, like are they serious or not serious, you know, and so, you know, when we're dealing with injuries, you, we have to make our best guess of, like, if you put yourself in the other team's shoes, you know, how much are you going to pay for that guy who, who may be broken? So we do have to discount for that to some degree. There's always sort of a variable of how much you discount for that, and we're just doing a best guess, frankly, because we're not doctors. Um, but common sense is the rule here and says, okay, well, if that guy's dinged up and you're not quite sure if he's healthy, yeah, you're not going to pay as much for him. And a couple of comments on that. Uh, on the one hand, it's it's perhaps more exaggerated for these two guys because they are a large part of their appeal is that both Maley, well, all three of these guys, but talking about Maley and Montas specifically because of the shoulder injuries, uh, they have an additional year of control. They're controllable through 2023. And so... Even if they, you know, the rest did it for them and they're fine now and they can get through the rest of this season, there's still the possibility that it, you know, it comes back up next season and, and they do have to miss a, a substantial amount of time because of the shoulder. Um, so that's kind of a concern that wouldn't necessarily be there for a rental. And then the other point I wanted to make um, about about their shoulders specifically is that it's going to decrease their value a bit 
but just given the state of the starting pitching market and the lack of real alternatives there and how many other teams need starting pitching, I don't think it's really going to crush them too bad unless it turns out to be something substantial before the deadline. You know, if one of them goes on the 60-day injured list between now and August 2nd, obviously that's going to tank their value completely. But it might just be at the point where like, yeah, their price point might come down a little bit, but there's, there's so many teams that need a starting pitcher. And after the two of them, you're looking at Paul Blackburn and, you know, Jose Quintana and options like that, that somebody's going to have to pay up for him because there are going to be teams still kind of bidding for these guys, even if that's, that's now a question mark. Yeah. Um, the interesting sort of outlier here is Noah Syndergaard. If the Angels do decide to sell, he's on a one-year contract, so he'd be a rental. But he's obviously got high-end potential, and he's a guy. Like, I know he's not pitching; he's not having the greatest season ever, but he's not bad. And he's a guy that can kind of step it up if he's on a contender. So you can see the Yankees may be interested in him as that other option for a number two starter in the playoffs. Uh, so he's one to watch. But look, I mean, to the point of. Montas and Mailey in particular, there's going to be a whole bunch of scouts watching their next start whenever that is and following that line of thought closely. No one's going to commit to them until we see that they're healthy, their velocity is there, they look right, you know, and reassured that, you know, they're okay. Otherwise, yeah, they're not giving up not nearly as much for them as they might have before that happened. Um, so that's the big wild card there. I actually disagree on that, on Cindergard. Um, We'll talk a little bit later about kind of the Angels at large, uh, but I think Cindergard is kind of a landmine, and I don't—I wouldn't be surprised if other teams looked at him that way as well. Um, first of all, because as you mentioned, he just really isn't performing that well. I mean, he's—he's he's fine, and he's definitely like you know the next man up in that list of uh, starting pitchers based on pure talent and like potential alone. But he is pitching more like a, a four, a three or a four starter than than the ace that he used to be. Uh, but also, he only pitched 10 innings last year between the minors and the majors because he was coming back from that injury, and he didn't pitch at all in 2020. And so being in a six-man rotation with Otani has helped a little bit, but he's still he's thrown 74 innings this year. There's going to be some sort of a ceiling there. You know, they, they mentioned preseason that he doesn't have a, a sharp uh, pitch limit, an inning limit, excuse me. But... You figure at some point here he might run out of gas or potentially even re-injure himself because he's going to be hitting territory. I mean, he's already well into territory that he didn't reach the last couple of years, and it's just a question of, okay, is the bottom going to fall out, and if so, when? And so specifically for a team like the Yankees that has a lot of guys that are like that already, you know, the, the Yankees' problem right now is Nestor Cortez and Luis Severino and Domingo Herman when he comes back, and those guys aren't built up and they're going to be reaching new innings totals that they hadn't before. That's kind of one of their problems right now, and I'm not sure adding Syndergaard to that mix really would be too attractive to them, since he's kind of just another guy with the same issue. Yeah, fair point. All right. Um, that's that, That'll probably be good as far as <laughs> the starting pitchers go. Um, let's also, or let's now take a look at the bubble teams. Um on, on the trade market because, you know, there's there, there's a lot of clear buyers and there's a handful of clear sellers and it's always fun to look at the bubble teams, but especially now with the expanded playoffs, I think that that kind of bubble range expands accordingly because there's going to be teams who really 
previously wouldn't have had a shot and now they kind of do. And then there's going to be those teams that, you know, previously they would have had a decent shot and been a few games out of a, a wild card game where it's kind of, you know, 50, 50, whether they can win it and advance to the real playoffs versus now they're going to be a few games out of a three game wild card series with just a, you know, so much can happen in a three game series. And I don't know, there's so many other factors at play now with the expanded playoffs is what I'm trying to say. And so it kind of expands the field of bubble teams that you can look at and at least say, eh, maybe they can make the playoffs or you say, eh, maybe it's time for them to, to, to turn it in and, and try again next year. Um, so I don't know where you want to start. If you want to start with any teams in specific, um, we were just talking about Syndergaard. So do you want to maybe start there, continue talking about the angels and kind of yeah. what they do, what they could do if oh they God. bought or sold? Yeah. I mean, they are trending down. They've just been on a terrible losing streak and you know, the vibe is down. They fired their manager. You get the sense that they're sort of like, eh, shrugging again. They're not going to make the playoffs. You know, you get the sense that they're dejected. And so even with Trout and Otani, you know, Marsh has not been living up to his promise. Adele obviously just brought him up, but he's been close to a bust. Uh, even Taylor Ward, who started off so hot, has kind of cooled off a bit. So, like, even the, kind of the secondary layer after Trout Tra- and Otani is just sort of iffy and kind of meh. And then after that, you know, <laughs> they just had Taylor and Tyler Wade DFA'd and, like, you know, they're, they're – there's dirty men on the roster after that. So like, and, and the pitching staff after Hotani and, and, you know, we talked about Sittergaard is no great chick. Sandoval's been, you know, okay. So that's not a championship team, right? And so like what, and you've only got Otani for a year after this and you've got a terrible farm, one of the worst in the business. So there's an art, there's an, there's an argument to be made that you might as well just pack it in. But the other side of that is who are you going to trade? Let's say, for example, Trout and Otani are off limits because those are your superstars. You know, and you're not trading Marsh because he's young. You're not trading Ward because he's still relatively young and full of control. Like, who are you trading other than Syndergaard and maybe a reliever? <laughs> you know, to, to para. You know, there's not much you can – you're not going to revamp your farm with a couple of rental guys. So, like, you might as well just stick it out and maybe get get on a roll and get better luck. They are really stuck between a rock and a hard place. I don't know what I would do if I were them, frankly. But, you know, I'd probably just go for it because selling doesn't really get you much. Yeah, I'm very much also of the opinion that they should just stand pat. Like you say, the only guy with any real value who really makes any sense to trade is Cindergard. And even then, his value is pretty low. He's in, like, the threes or fours. Like, that's not getting you a ton back. And, yeah, they could eat some of the contract. I also feel like from a from a PR standpoint, that's kind of an admission of guilt or an, excuse me, an admission of failure where he was the big guy that they brought in this off season. And, and you know, yeah, we're not going to, you know, be sh- spending out those $10 million, $8 million contracts to the Trevor Cahills and Matt Harvey's like we learned our lesson from that. We're going to go a bit higher and we're still only going to do the one year thing, but we're getting Noah Syndergaard. Look at, look at how big of a name he is, how good he used to be. And I think trading him, whether whether you care more about it in regards to like the message it sends to the fan base or the message it sends to Trout and Otani and, and the rest of the players, I think trading him is is that admission of failure that like yeah we we screwed up, um and and we're not going to try to win this year. So I'm with you. They they don't have much to trade. Can we? <laughs> I mentioned this at the near the end of my uh, my trade deadline primer article, which will be linked in the in the show notes. 
And thankfully, I think the Juan Soto buzz has kind of masked it for us, so maybe we won't we won't hear it as much as we otherwise would have. But they're not trading Trout, and they're not trading Otani, and that's pretty. I feel very confident saying that. I don't. I'm not a betting man. I don't know what I would bet <laughs> in this scenario, but I, those guys aren't going anywhere. There's no scenario. I mean, I know you mentioned that that Otani only has a year and a half of team control left, and he's seemed pretty clear in past talks that you know he really just wants to play for a contender at this point, um, unless the Angels turn it around within the next year or, or get some good. Uh, make some good moves, successful moves in the off season and build a real contender. It doesn't seem too likely he'll hang around the way Trout has and, and cross his fingers uh, and sign an extension. So you really got this next year and a half to put something together or else he's walking in free agency. Uh, but I don't see any scenario in which trading Shohei Otani helps you build a contender around prime Mike Trout. I think you have to run it out. You know, you see what happens the rest of this season you try real hard in the offseason since you know it's Otani's last year and you know Trout isn't getting any younger. You try real hard in the offseason to actually put a team together around those two guys for, for one last hurrah, kind of. And, you know, if it doesn't work again, let's talk about trading Shohei Otani next deadline. But otherwise, you, you try to run it out and you see if you can build a good team and then you can lock up Shohei Otani. That's my take. I feel very strongly about that. Uh, what's what's yours on the Otani yeah, of it all? No, that sounds right. You know, and they got to keep them, keep in mind the optics, the PR, the fan, so you know, the fans that they get. You know, even all the Japanese fans that kind of come over as tourists to Southern California. There's all these considerations, right? So you don't trade a superstar like that if you don't have to, and they don't have to. So I'm with you. Um, yeah. Trout isn't getting any any younger. Um, he's he's still Trout, but you know you get a funny little feeling that he's not quite twenty six, twenty seven year old Trout anymore. He's you know you can start to see a little bit of decline happening year after year. So like the urgency is only getting more intense. And I saw an article that you know Perry Manassian, the GM of the Angels, took full to his credit. He said, "Okay, this is on me. I didn't." put together a winning roster that 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 is on me i'm accountable for that and good for him for saying that now because you know he's you know frankly i would go a level higher than that and say it's really the owner Roberto moreno who is the one constant through all these years of failure and kind of overstep spending on guys like rendon and and you know handcuffing the gm's ability to do much you know they've had multiple gms and none, nothing much has changed so then you think, okay, maybe the problem is the owner, not the GM. But good for Perry for at least, you know, taking the heat. Yeah, and you can imagine if, if I mean, he, he might be on the hot seat already, but if next season doesn't go as planned, he's, I, I don't know how, how he stays in, in Anaheim. If they screw up again next year and Otani walks, I, I think he's he's out of there too. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Basically... I think as as baseball fans, we're sad that the Angels can't put it together and get those two into the playoffs. But I think we agree that it doesn't make any sense for them to sell some of these marginal assets. You know, maybe they trade a reliever or two because that's unlikely to have a massive impact on the second half of the season anyway. And, you know, maybe they get out from some of Aaron Loop's contract. I don't know. He's been pretty bad for them. But the Mets need a lefty and they like Aaron Loop. Maybe there's a fit there. Um, 
something something along those lines, you know, Archie Bradley's injured right now, so that he's not really a trade candidate. You mentioned Tapera. Rysel Iglesias is pretty far underwater, and he's got a few years of control left, so he's probably not a, a trade candidate. So yeah, there's just not much to move from. And, you know, maybe Michael Lorenzen, I guess. I don't know. Um, but yeah, best case for them is, I mean, unless they come out of the all-star break and just win every game and suddenly they're in the mix because that's the thing even if even if they won every game between now and the deadline and all the other contenders ahead of them went like 500 which i'm I'm not even sure if that's possible because there's so many contenders ahead of them they got to play each other at some point but at the time of recording right now they're nine and a half back of the third wild card spot with five teams they'd have to jump not even including the blue jays the sixth team that hold that wild card spot right now so that's that's a really tall ask so you're saying there's a them. chance there is <laughs> let's let's find out how much of a chance let me pull up roster uh, excuse me let me pull up fan graphs and uh see how their playoff odds are looking right now i'm gonna i'm gonna wager a guess and say not good um, all right, 2%. That's, so that's what we're looking at. there's a chance. 2% chance. Hey, Better than I mean, zero. I mean, preseason, the Baltimore Orioles, check out this transition, the Baltimore Orioles had zero chance, and now they're up to 1.3. They're, they're making noise, John. I what do the Orioles do? I love the Orioles, right? You know, who doesn't? You know, rags to riches. Look, the Orioles have the the strongest farm according to our model. In the in and this is well, I'll double check. Maybe it, it went down a notch after Rutschman graduated, but um, but it has a very strong farm. And they're exciting. You know, they've already started to to populate the major league roster a little bit with young guys like Rutschman and others. Uh, but you know, even like journeymen like Jorge Mateo are playing well, and Ramon Urias is playing well, and the bullpen is like, what? Where did those guys come from? You know, so it's fun to watch. Um, I don't think they're a playoff team. I think this is an easy call. Uh, you know, you don't necessarily have to sell Jorge Lopez because I think he has more control. You know, sell a rental, um, maybe, but you don't have to sell anybody else. Maybe Santander because you want to clear a roster spot for some other guys that are coming. Um, you know, so I can see that you don't want to sell Mullins because he's gonna you're gonna need him next year and the year after when you start to feel a little bit more competitive. Um, Mancini is a tough call because he's got that sentimental value, and so and you're not gonna get that much for him. So I, I you know, they don't have to trade him. It's not like urgent or anything. If they want to just sort of keep him and show good faith to the fans, that's fine. Uh, if they want to trade him, if they get like an overpay for him, that's fine too. But there's not much else to trade, so you're not really like selling any big pieces there. Yeah, uh, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to plug that we've been uh, joining Robbie Hyde over on YouTube for live streams every Wednesday to go over trade talks and stuff like that. And I was on this last Wednesday, and we discussed the Orioles because they've just been surging and they've been so attractive. And one idea that Robbie brought up and that I'm pretty on board with and we kind of workshopped it out together was, yeah, Santander. Like, that, that makes some sense. Santander is, you know... He's nothing super special, but he's a fairly valuable outfielder. We have him, I think, right around $10 million in trade value. Um, I'm not sure where that will adjust as we as we release our next round of updates, but he's a, he's a perfectly cromulent outfielder. He's got a 110 WRC plus last year, 98 for his career, but that includes, you know, really rough start to his career. So he's, he's a slightly above average bat. Switch hitter. I think a guy like that can be really valuable especially this deadline while things are the market is so shallow 
I think he could be really interesting to maybe the Yankees, to the Padres, to Cleveland, to team, even the White Sox if they buy. And so he's not an, an essential part of your future in Baltimore. You can flip him for an interesting near major league ready starting pitcher or something like that, that might line up a little bit better with your window and, and help you down the road. So I, I like something like that. Uh, but I'm, I'm with you on, you know, they don't need to be selling anybody crazy. They don't need to be selling Lopez unless they get a really good offer. Um, so yeah, what do, you, what do you think on something like that for Santander? Yeah. And then I also want to ask, what do you think about Trey Mancini? <clears throat> yeah, so Santander, I, I think, makes all the sense world, like I said, because you want to clear a roster spot for some younger guys coming. Uh, but the the other thing, sometimes you see in the, you know, rumors and reports that a, a GM will be interviewed, and they always make some statement about how, well, we're looking at balancing the present and the future. And what that means is they want a guy with more control. So, in other words, you could get Santander for about the same price as you would pay for a Benatendi. Benatendi is a rental, maybe a little better player, but not that much better than Santander. And you got Santander for two and a half years. So that's the kind of player that would be attractive to a team that is always saying, yeah, we're balancing the present and the future, like the Guardians, for example, who always need an outfielder. Um, so, you know, um, or the Rays, or, you know, somebody who, you know, doesn't usually trade for just a rental so he'll be attractive to teams like that um you know mancini is a dh first base type um keep in mind last uh second half of last season he really fell off a cliff i think he had like one home run and his average tanked and his wc plus tanked you know so he got tired and you know who knows why maybe he just out of shape from the previous year the pandemic or the health issues he had he's playing a little bit better this year so maybe he's more reliable this year but you got to think in the back of, of some team's minds who might be thinking about acquiring him yeah what if he does that again maybe the season's going to get long again and he sort of turns into a pumpkin again so you know from that standpoint i don't know that anybody's going to give up that much for him either he's also making a bit more money than he was last year so you know they'll get a little bit for him but again not that much to really justify the the pr hit yeah, that that's what I've been saying I think for a while now. <laughs> it's just that is it really worth it to save yourself a couple million dollars down the stretch and pick up, you know, a double A reliever and a lottery ticket 18-year-old starter? Is that worth what it does to your fan base, especially at a time when the team is looking so good and you're getting the fans excited? I'm not saying they need to extend the guy for the next 5 seasons. I I don't think he has a home in Baltimore really anymore a natural fit at least since Ryan Mountcastle kind of does the same thing he does, but maybe a little bit better and he's definitely younger and cheaper. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure he has a great spot there. I guess they could maybe try and work a shorter term thing out, keep him around as a DH and a clubhouse guy to kind of lead the rebuild or lead, lead the team out of the rebuild, I guess I should say, and, and into contention. Um, but yeah, I, I'm with you. It just doesn't seem to make much sense uh, for them to, for for them to trade him for for such a low return right now um back to santander I, i'm with you that it makes more like the guardians are a really good fit because they always are so budget conscious i can't get the padres out of my head though because they've been they really need to cut some costs they're really right up against you know kind of their financial limits i mean i don't <laughs> this isn't necessarily the place to to just workshop some of these trade ideas uh, off the top of my head but I wonder if there's some appeal to to moving Santander to the Padres, and he helps lengthen their lineup a bit. They need some outfield help. 
and he's only making three million this year, and it's even less down the stretch. But his, his total year salary salary is about three million. He'll be making about four million, uh, yeah, four point seven million next year, and about seven point one million his final year of control. That's still pretty cheap. Um, but I wonder if there is something interesting that could be done there with Santander to the Padres and Myers, his underwater contract and and a decent second piece to the Orioles that might be interesting. I mean, obviously Preller <laughs> loves to get creative, and he you know he's trying to move a bad contract. He's been trying to offload Hosmer for years now, and and Myers too, and he really hasn't had any takers. But maybe the circumstances are just weren't right. Maybe all all the pieces didn't line up in the right time. So maybe this is it. Uh, but you know, Myers is still a negative value, and he's like negative seven or something in that range. Uh, he's not having a very good year, so you have to pay people to take him. But then that doesn't solve your budget problem. Like they're right up against the tax line, so they have to cut budget. So they can't really put in money to cover Myers' negative value. So they're going to have to um, get cre- like I, you know, are they taking a lesser value player, but or or are they putting in prospects? But they've depleted most of their farm, unless you start talking, you know, sort of. You're not going to trade Hassel for a Santander. Obviously, that's way too much. So, but then you start looking at the sort of the second tier, mid tier guys, and maybe you can put something together. Um, like if you if you overcompensate enough with prospects for Sandair, then you can justify the negative seven on Myers. And from Baltimore's point of view, you say, okay, yeah, that gives us you know a couple better prospects than we could have otherwise if we take Myers' contract, and they have a very low budget right now. So yeah, sure, I can see that working. If it happens, I want full credit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I think uh, maybe the last bubble teams uh, we can talk about and we can kind of lump them in together a little bit. Um, I'm really interested in both the Guardians, who we just talked about a little bit, and the Chicago White Sox, uh, because the NL Central or excuse me, the AL Central hasn't quite worked out the way anyone thought it would. I mean, I was uh, I have a bit of a twins bias, so I had some expectations that they'd be better this year. I don't know if I expected them to just kind of sit at top at the top of the division somewhat uncontested. Um, I know right now the Guardians are making some noise behind them, which also nobody really expected. Um, but it's an interesting competition for the division that we didn't really see coming into the year. So Cleveland is two and a half out of the division right now. The White Sox are four out. Um, Cleveland is also two back from a wild card spot while the, the White Sox are three and a half back. Uh, but you'd figure each of those teams is going to have their sights set on the division more likely than not. It's, it's with how competitive the AL East is. And now that Seattle is heating up, it seems very likely that there's only going to be one playoff team coming out of the AL central. Uh, so it's going to be kind of a race for the division there. We talked a lot about how the White Sox don't have much in terms of a farm. And in the offseason, we talked a lot about what kind of a farm, how, how wealthy of a farm the Guardians have. So what do you see from each of those two teams between now and the deadline? So first of all, this is like the division that nobody wants to win. Like, <laughs> come on, like just somebody take it. Um, you know, but I, I in, in all seriousness, I think, you know, there's been a lot of injuries, especially on the White Sox side. Uh, but if you look at the minor league trends and the prospect lists and things, a few interesting trends have happened. The Twins farm has gotten worse. The White Sox farm has actually gotten better. The Guardians is still strong. It's been strong, and it's actually gotten even stronger. So they have the most prospect capital, and this is important because they can pull the trigger on a trade to help the major league team and get them over the hump to win that division. 
they can pull that trigger easier than the White Sox or Twins can. Uh, in fact, they would because they've got a roster crunch. I mean, they've got one, two, they've got like eight or nine guys in double digits at the top of their farm. So they can part with two of those guys and get some impact player or two back to help the Major League Club and still have a strong farm. You can't say that about the Twins or the White Sox. So they're going to be an interesting team to watch. I can see them dealing, like a, especially in the middle infielders, you know, Gabriel Arias and Taylor Freeman and Angel Martinez and Jose Tenia. They've got all these like shortstop second baseman types with nowhere to put them. They're probably going to keep Rocchio, who's their top one. But those other guys, you know, sure, uh, I can see them being moved. Um, their pitching staff, the Guardians pitching staff, which is always, you know, their whole system has been respected and vaunted, but it's been a little bit shaky and not quite as good as you would hope this year. You know, they've still got Bieber at the top, and he's not been the, the same as Bieber in the past, but he's been showing flashes lately. But guys like Savali and Plesak have just been, yeah, okay. Quantrill's been a disappointment. Their values have all gone down. And so, like, you got to think maybe they could use a little pitching help as well, so they may maybe in the market for a Montaz kind of guy. And then over on the Twins side, the big news there on the prospect side is Austin Martin's value has tanked quite a bit. We have him down to 11. Remember when he was the centerpiece last year in the Barrios trade? He was in the 40s or so. And he's down to 11 now. He's just really struggling, and he has no defensive position. Um, he's dropped quite a bit in the Baseball America team rankings. Uh, he's dropped out of the top 100. Um, so, you know, they don't they don't have a whole lot to work with there. Jordan Velasovich, who was previously their top pitching prospect, also dropped quite a bit. So, you know, they got a couple of new guys near the top, uh, but those guys are just sort of eh, 15, 14, 11. There's not that much to work with. So, and they're a team that, that likes to balance the present and the future as well. So you might think, okay, well, if they don't have much prospect capital to trade, you know, maybe they don't make a trade. You know, but then again, they need pitching. So, like, you know, and they're in first place. So you got to think, well, okay, they should. They should be in the market for Montas, but the A's are not going to take, you know, Austin Martin at eleven. You know, maybe you know, maybe they would. I don't know, but but maybe they can piece it together and take a shot and buy low at some of the on some of these guys. But it's my point is that there's not that much to work with if you're Minnesota. There's still not that much work to work with if you're the White Sox. The Guardians definitely have an edge when it comes to these types of moves. That's definitely the correct assessment as far as their farm systems go and kind of the situations and strategies of the team to an extent. But I also wonder, there's there's immensely more pressure on the White Sox than either the Twins or the Guardians, right? Because the White Sox, they're, they're in their win-now mode. They're in their competitive window, and it's easy to see it closing in the next year or two. You know, they've been, haven't been the greatest this year. Yeah, it's been injuries, but... You know, they're they're running out of time on, on some of their core pieces. Yasmani Grandal, next season is his last. Uh, Lance Lynn hasn't been very good this year. He has an option for 2024, but right now at least he's projected, or the, the team's projected to decline that option. Um, next year is their last year of Lucas Giolito, unless they can extend him. Uh, they're... Th- th- their team's getting more expensive, and they're going to start losing guys soon. So there, there's a sense of urgency there, I think, that may have them more motivated to move some of those prospects. And I think to a lesser extent, there might be something similar going on with the Twins, because the Twins have Carlos Correa, who they have no no certainty over whether he's going to be on the team next season. Uh, he's got that interesting three-year deal with an opt-out after each season. 
right now he's projected to opt out because he's having a pretty solid year and he's he's protect, projected to try the the free agent market again and maybe the twins pony up and and extend him keep him there uh, but we've never seen them offer a massive deal like this the biggest one they had was joe mauer and that was a, a completely different situation where he was the homegrown surefire superstar and they, and they kept him that was also with a different regime in place etc etc so i wonder if they might have some motivation especially because they have such clear needs of you you can add a couple veteran relievers to that team and one innings eater and one quality arm like Montas. And suddenly that, that team looks way better Um, versus the guardians. They have the youngest team in baseball. And now that Jose Ramirez is locked up, they really don't have that same kind of timer that the other two teams do have. And they've gotten kind of good at, they've always been good at, at developing and finding talent, but now they just have this like kind of horde of, of talent that they've amassed here. And we just haven't seen them trade from it yet in any substantial way. And we did see that they were really hesitant to add any kind of salary in the offseason. So I just wonder how aggressive they really want to be compared to how aggressive the White Sox and Twins might be willing to be. Yeah, those are those are really good points. But the clock is ticking. They've got the, on the Cleveland side, they've got to add a whole bunch more guys to the 40 because otherwise they're going to get you know, poached in the rule five, especially these higher value guys. So there's definitely a roster crunch issue that is going to motivate motivate them. I would be shocked if they didn't start moving some of these guys at this deadline because they got it. I mean, it's just it's just adding up. That pressure in their back pocket is just adding up. Um, you know, so so that is a strong motivational factor. And I but I also agree with you that the White Sox have to make a move because it's their window closing. Um, they probably feel the most pressure. You know they've been kind of the the team to watch for a couple of years now i mean to, to their credit just i would mention their farm has improved a little bit colson montgomery is on this incredible you know on base streak at least he was last time i looked and his value has risen to 23 brian ramos has also kind of crept up a little bit to 11 so um at the beginning of the offseason their their highest guy was in the single digits and now they got two in the double digits so that helps a little bit you you can see them putting together now a package for Montas, you know, let's say, you know, by, you know, led by Montgomery and another piece or Ramos and a couple pieces. So there's, there's life there. I can see that, you know, but I can definitely see each of these teams moving something. Yeah. I think it's also important to point out with Cleveland that you wrote about their upcoming roster crunch at the beginning of the last off season. And you pointed out how they have so many players in each of the next couple of years that will need to be, that are quality prospects that will need to be added to the 40 man. And then they did add a handful of those guys uh, this last offseason to protect them from the Rule 5 draft. And there were a few of them that they ended up having to leave off because there just wasn't enough room for them. And then the Rule 5 draft didn't end up happening. <laughs> so those those few right. guys that you, you, theoretically, you know, from when you wrote that article and evaluated all of this, the idea is, okay, yeah, even if they can't protect everyone, they're going to kind of naturally lose a couple of these guys anyway because they won't be able to protect them and another team might draft them but they didn't. So now those those guys that went unprotected last year but have some value are still with the organization plus the next wave of guys that excuse me that would have needed to be added this upcoming offseason. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's a good point that they have this pretty big backlog of guys and you know, the names have changed a little bit. There there's guys who might have been on the on the up and up at the time and they've had a poor 2022 seasons, so their stock has fallen and now they might not be worth protecting. But there's also probably some breakout guys that weren't on the radar before, and now they are worth protecting. So mm-hmm. it, we we can't really do a full 
or at least we, we haven't really done a full full stock evaluation of them at, at present. Uh, that might wait until the off season, but th- it's fair to say that there's a lot of talent there. And there's even, even rule five aside, there's not going to be room for all of it at the big league level. So why not make a move now while the team is good? All right. Um, I think we're pretty much good here. I want to at least mention the national league teams. Cause I realized we, we just focused on kind of the AL race, the AL bubble teams. Um, the I think the most interesting of them is the Giants, just because they were so good last year, but they lost Posey and Crawford and Belt got older and haven't been as good. And they lost Kevin Gosman, but it seems like they've replaced him very well with Carlos Rodon. He's been incredible. Um, and, and right now their team is kind of all platoons, <laughs> almost, it seems like. They, they've really gone hard into it. Uh, but the, the good thing about that is it makes it a little easier to upgrade because they could really use just a quality player at any position would really upgrade their whole team, their whole lineup. Um, so they're they're probably the most interesting of the National League kind of bubble teams to me. St. Louis doesn't really feel like a bubble team because they're going to be going for it. They're in a, they're, it's, it's, you know, it's the other central. Nobody wants to win that one either. So it's, it's really going to be either them or the Brewers and the other team might miss out on the playoffs entirely. And they're so close to each other. There's no point in either of them not going for it. Plus it's the Cardinals. They always go for it every year. And and this year with Pujols and Molina there and Wainwright, it would be a, a cool story. Um, and then really the only other teams that are even kind of bubble-ish are, are the Phillies who are so well, so invested in this season and they're only a half game out of a playoff spot right now that, yeah, it seems pretty easy to say they're going for it. And the Marlins, which they, they could be interesting, I think. Um, real quick, we don't have to go too deep into it. We're already a little over on time. Uh, what do you think the Marlins do? What, do you, what would you do if you were them? Um, if I were the Marlins, I would sell. Um, but not like people are still banding about the idea of a Pablo Lopez trade. No, you don't. I don't think they need to do that. Um, and nor do I think they need to sell one of the younger pitchers. I mean, they just brought up Max Meyer, I know, but you know, pitching is always the kind of thing like the Dodgers have shown us. You need like seven or eight starters to be a real competitive team. And, and, you know, Luzardo went down and Rogers has not been as good this year as he was last year. So like, there's always twists and turns. So, you know, I don't think they should sell any of those guys. Um, you could maybe make a case for a Miguel Rojas or Brian Anderson or uh, Aguilar. Aguilar has no value, but the other two have a little bit. You know, maybe you sell those guys. Or Garrett Cooper's always in the news. Is like, yeah, teams are interested in Garrett Cooper. Yeah, okay. Um, because I think you've got a you're it's sort of an interesting core. If you're Kimming and the and the Marlins, you've got um, you know some young pieces like Chisholm who are developing into stars. And some young pitchers are still in Alcantara. He's having a Cy Young year. He's just amazing. Um, so it's a little bit, but you've got some holes in other places. Um, and your farm, you've got Yuri Perez at the top, and then some other guys who are eh, questionable. Um, so, like, they're in a weird place. You know, you can kind of piece it together and say, okay, they're going to be competitive in the next couple of years. You might as well just sort of throw in the towel for this one. Um, but a couple of those guys are a little ways away. Like Yuri Perez is amazing, but he's what nineteen or twenty, and, and not even twenty yet, and he's he's probably two years away. Um, I will say there was an interesting sort of side note um, about their top draft pick uh, from last year, um, flanking on Khalil, Khalil Watson. Um, he had um, there were always rumors that he had a kind of a personality coachability issue, and then he had this incident where. 
you know, he pointed his bat at the ump as if to kind of like threaten him, and they pulled him, and he hasn't been on the team. He hasn't been playing since. Like they not, they just didn't have a talk with him. He had been, like, like I don't know where he is. Like, like there's something weird going on there. So that has definitely hurt his value. Uh, and that would also sort of align with the fact that, you know, he fell all the way to number 15, I think it was, in last year's draft because people had doubts about his personality. So my point is if you're waiting for him to be kind of part of the next wave, that there's a big issue there. And so I don't know. <clears throat> um, I, I would say you might as well at least turn over a little bit of what you can now and and hope for the future because I think some of the, some other guys will probably step up. Um, so that's the Marlins. I just wanted to make a point about the Giants, though, too, since you mentioned them. Um, yeah, the Giants are in a tough spot because they've been just sort of mixing and matching every year with veteran guys, especially the pitchers. And it's kind of that, that game is starting to play it out a little bit, and they're not quite as magical as they were last year. But the good news is they have a fairly solid farm now, especially in the middle tier, and that's where most teams make their trades. It's like they're probably not going to trade Marco Luciano or Kyle Harrison. But they've got guys in sort of the next tier. You can see them maybe trading Matos. And there's a whole bunch of guys in the upper single digits like Arteaga and Palmeiras and Schmidt and Sagasti. Like these guys are in the 9, 8, 7, 6, 5 range. You can put a few of those together, at least get a Benintendi or at least get a Santander or at least get somebody else who might be able to help you. Um, so I can see them making moves like that from the middle tier of their farm. Yeah, I definitely agree. We saw them start to do it with Canario in the Bryant trade last year, and I could for sure see something similar. Um, one last point about the Marlins is I compare them to a team like the D-backs, where you can't just keep rebuilding forever. And I think they're both in that spot where, you know, they're close to 500 and they're kind of done losing. They have a lot of interesting young talent, and it's just they got to get it performing in the big leagues that's that's the last hurdle that they got to jump over uh the the orioles are getting to that spot now tigers thought they were in that spot and so they spent big in the off season and it hasn't really worked out for them um but teams in that kind of spot they they don't trade these controllable players i don't think zach Cal zach gallon is being traded by the d-backs i don't think pablo lopez is or any of the other young starters are being traded by the marlins because at some point, you're going to need those guys to kind of lead the rebuild. Or, excuse me, to, to <laughs> same mistake I made earlier with Mancini. Lead the team out of the re, uh, rebuild. And so I don't think Cedric Mullins is going anywhere either for that right. reason. Uh, they're in that kind of stage where, yes, those guys are going to be attractive. And yes, if they were traded, they would kind of, they would be the prize of the deadline. And, you know, I think it is such a weak trade market because of the expanded playoffs and because the A's and Reds did most of their selling in the off season. I think that makes it such a weak market that maybe there's just a slightly higher than normal chance that one of those big names gets dealt, that one of those guys or Brian Reynolds or David Bednar of the Pirates, uh, one of those more valuable, more controllable guys that, that would really kind of shake things up and cost a lot. I think there's a slightly higher chance than normal of that just because the rest of the market is so weak that you might see a team like the Yankees or Dodgers say, no, we're going to push our chips in. We're going to go get that guy. We'll, we'll pay that high price because we think it'll make us that much better than the rest of the league and, and really give us a chance at a ring. Um, maybe just slightly higher chance, but I still think that's very unlikely. And so for that reason, I'm with you on the Marlins probably looking at some of their rental guys. I think even Garrett Cooper is a maybe because they just seem like they really love him there. Um, but yeah, a Wendell and Aguilar, some of their bullpen pieces, 
something along those lines. I don't think they can move uh, Avisail Garcia. I don't think teams are going to be too interested in Jorge Soler on on a multi-year contract. Uh, but some of those other more expiring type guys might be interesting. Yeah, but they're not going to get a ton, you know, for some of those guys. They're sort of, you know, meh-ish players. So, you know, it's not going to move the needle all that much. Right. And last note, I wanted to mention on the Khalil Watson thing. I did see one of those, you know, semi-credible, not really credible <laughs> type Twitter accounts. You know, the like Marlins news source with, with no check mark kind of things. One of them reporting that the rift between the Marlins and Khalil Watson is actually kind of substantial and they're going to shop him around. Um, I don't know how much stock to put into that. I, it's, it's obviously not the best time to shop him around. It would absolutely be selling low. He wasn't performing well at all before this whole incident. And if you got the makeup issues, yeah, that's not going to help. Um, but I guess that's uh, just wanted to include that as something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I actually saw that as well. Uh, I think the best source for... Marlins news is Craig Mish, uh, who has been you know on it for years, and I think he did say something about that as well. Like they'd be you know looking to shop him. So you know, and when when you put it out there, so that hey we're dangling this guy, he's for sale for best offer. That's generally a bad sign. That means you're basically going to sell low on him, and you know maybe not even get full fair value for him uh, because you've sort of you know shown your cards. So. He might be moved. Somebody might take a chance and buy low on him. Yeah, I totally agree. Craig Mish is great, and we'll have to wait and see on Watson. But um, do you have anything else to get to today, or do you think uh, we're good here? Just one last point. Uh, look for another update of our values. We've been talking about Juan Soto half the time, but his value is going to change a little bit, um, but not to Josh's point, not much. Uh, but some other guys, and it's only been two weeks. We're now getting to the point where we're getting closer and closer to the deadlines. We're going to update every two weeks, and we have a new, new faster process that enables us to do that. So that's good. Um, but the um, and so some guys who you know sometimes we get comments like, "Oh, Trent Grisham's way too high," and that's largely because he had established a baseline and there wasn't a small enough, the a large enough sample size yet. I know he's been underperforming, but you'll start to see guys like that who like have been underperforming their value is going to start to go down a little bit more meaningfully because the 2022 numbers will start to slowly overtake the old baseline numbers from 2021 in the past so that's the way our model works that's the way any model works is you start to see the present start to overtake the past a little bit more it doesn't turn on a dime like oh my god he's untradeable it's not that fast but it does slowly creep and it does slowly work and by the time we get to the deadline it generally converges to the point where your eye test matches the numbers. Yeah, if we reacted fully to every, you know, month sample of data for every Grisham, there's a couple of, you know, a Juan Soto and a Shohei Otani where they had a slow start to the year. And if we had completely reacted to their Aprils, their values would have been much lower than they are today because they've both come back and been their usual selves. So we and have then to be we patient. Get and then we get criticized for being, oh, you guys are all up and down. We can't trust anything you say. And so you have to have some consistency and some sort of baseline pattern to work from. So that's what we do. Yep, exactly. All right. This was fun. I'm glad we got back on a podcast finally and had some really interesting stuff to talk about, especially with Soto. Uh, but that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at baseballvalues. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back hopefully weekly from this point out uh, through the deadline. Uh, we're, it's going to be schedule permitting, but we're going to shoot for weekly uh, so we can break down all of the news and updates and trades and trade rumors. 
Uh, so until next week, stay safe and enjoy the season. Enjoy the trade season. Thanks, John. Thanks, Josh.